Today on the Dunker Punks podcast, we're going in depth discussing a virus that has affected millions of people around the world. Stay tuned. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be a sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. Unconditionally loving organic gardener. I wanna be authentic. I wanna be radical. I wanna be optimistic. Honest, beautiful. I wanna be humble. I wanna be progressive. I wanna be open. Inspiration. I wanna be like John Wesley, Sarah Major, Random Mouth. I wanna be like Martin Luther. Martin Luther King Jr. Like Santa Claus. Johnny Appleseed. Dirk Lamb. Gandhi. Alexander Mack. John Clark. George Fox. Welcome everyone to the Dunker Punks podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Krause. I always find it interesting how much more I learn about something if it affects me directly, yet how ignorant I am sometimes if it hasn't. Today's episode is kind of like that for me, though I expect I'll learn quite a bit through Ben Baird's interview with David Messimer, a member of the Modesto Church of the Brethren. They'll be discussing HIV and AIDS, which is a subject we don't hear talked about much within our church communities. As we listen, I think we should take some time to address our own stigmas and understanding about HIV and AIDS. All right. Hey there, Dunker Punks. This is Ben Bear back again for another episode. I am talking about a topic here that I feel like doesn't get a lot of airtime in the church in general and the Church of the Brethren specifically, and that's HIV and AIDS. And so I have with me a friend of mine from when I worked out in California that is going to help me go over some of what all that entails and the experiences that he's had there. So who are you? Who's, who's helping me out here? California, like Ben said, Modesto, California, the beautiful Modesto Church of the Brethren in California. I just did a play, I mean, do theater, 
Uh, I work at a junior college. Um, I uh, have two cats that keep me more busy than anything else. Um, I don't know. You know, everything. It's California, so the sun keeps me busy. Oh. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, it was totally cloudy for, and raining for like the last 10 days. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's what keeps me busy. And um, in regards to AIDS and HIV, just so that everybody knows, I was diagnosed um, in September of 2001 with HIV. So I've been positive for nearly 18 years, maybe closer to, you know, I'll be um, diagnosed HIV positive for 18 years um, in September of 2019. And there's the spiel. Cool. So okay. For for some of us that may not be as familiar, what is HIV as opposed to AIDS? Um, HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus. So HIV is the virus. Okay. AIDS, which can cause you to have AIDS if it goes um, undiagnosed and untreated. Um, so I guess um, HIV is the virus which will make you sick, but AIDS is a qualification. So if you've had HIV, if you have HIV and there are um, certain things that go along with that, I think a long, long time ago on the Phil Donahue show in like, I don't know, 1980-something, they talked about AIDS, they used to call it ARC, I think, but they still call it ARC, but it's, if you have an HIV diagnosis and your T-cells drop below a certain number, oh, I just threw T-cells out, sorry, we'll get to that. If your T-cells drop below a certain number, then um, you are classified as having AIDS. If you have HIV and you um, are diagnosed with certain other um, AIDS-related conditions, like um, Shigella is one of them, uh, like back in the day, pneumonia, pneumocystis, um, other things like that, then you'd be qualified as having AIDS. If you have no T-cells at all, then clearly you have AIDS as well. But you can regain some of those things, but you still have an AIDS classification, I guess, in a doctor's eyes. But it can go away and just become HIV again and still become undetectable. How's that? So what's a T cell? Okay. A T cell is uh, or a is, um, CD4 or whatever you were talking about. CD4, CD4 is, um, is the um, – I wish I could be a lot more scientifically specific for you, but, you know, 18 years to the doctor. But uh, <laughs> CD4, count, CD4 count is um, a count of your healthy – um, white blood, I think it's your white blood cells, that's correct, um, yeah, in that your body right. that fight off, yeah, say that again? That sounds right. Yeah, that, um, fight disease, so that are supporting your immune system. So when you, um, for instance, um, go and get an HIV test, um, if you are, um, diagnosed as having HIV, then the next step would be to do some other blood work panels, and one of those is your CD4 count, which references how many healthy white how many healthy cd4 how many healthy cells you have in your immune system or cells that still are fighting so for instance a normal cd4 count i think for anybody in the world is like around you know even if you don't have hiv just people if you're healthy your 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 t-cell count is like um it's around 500 but it can be a lot more um but Normal, I think, is like somewhere between 500 and 800. There's always discussion about what normal is. Um, and, of course, what is normal? But, uh, <laughs> um, but that's what your T-cells are. So um, when you have an AIDS and HIV diagnosis, 
um, then they check your T cells and then to find out how many T cells you have left or if you have any, if they've been affected, how they've been affected, um, which of course has to do with the strain of virus that you get and how strong the virus is or if you have a super virus or, or whatever. How's that? Are there different strains of HIV? Yes and no. How's that? You can have a stronger virus depending on, say for, in, say for instance, um, two people who have HIV who are, um, I don't want to speak for sure, but there are different ways that people's bodies handle the virus, and there are different um, strains of the virus, meaning like the, how quickly they attack your immune system and how strong they are, um, like how there are different old viruses, I guess that's a way to explain it better, like how certain every year we get, or people, some people, I have to get a flu shot every year, <clears throat> you know, they're like trying to fight certain flu viruses. Okay. It's kind of the same thing. I wish I could speak more clearly for you. I could certainly reference other people for you that will know. <clears throat> some people's bodies handle from viruses better. Some people have more mild viruses. Some people have what's called a super virus, meaning that like they're um, super strong. The virus is very strong and they're just... Gosh, I hope that there's no scientists listening. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> um, so how do people become infected with HIV? Uh, ben Bear. Um, well, I mean, I don't know that exact thing because there are, um, I have uh, many friends who work in AIDS and HIV um, care, also in um, AIDS and HIV. I have a friend who works as a, she's a freelance writer and she, she deals with AIDS and HIV specifically a lot. And so my, I have a friend who just finished, he's a nurse practitioner now, and he he just finished his, um, he's a nurse practitioner in AIDS and HIV specific. And there are, there are, there are strains of HIV that are from like the 20s and the 30s in this country that they have that are safe. So where it came from exactly or how it came, they're not, I don't think anyone's exactly sure. I think that when in the 80s, when HIV became, yeah, became and became more known internationally and nationally in the discussion and people started getting really sick, um, initially it was transmitted, transmitted through sexual contact, but certainly through blood contact as well. Um, I, I don't want to say that it came from animals necessarily. Um, that's what I know. How's that? Okay. Um, so did you want a better answer than that, Ben Bear? Well, uh, <laughs> I was. Keep going. I wasn't actually going for quite that far back. I was thinking more of how does an individual potentially become infected. Um, and so you referenced oh, wow, that. To me. I just want to come off smart. Um, so you reference that sexual contact um, intercourse is one way. Um, what are some other ways sure. that, that um, people become infected? Uh, okay, so uh, certainly sharing of needles. Um, so it's a bloodborne pathogen. You know what I mean? It, um, it's going to be passed through blood and some um, bodily fluids. So needles. So for people who are drug addicts. Um, you can certainly use um, somebody's dirty rig or dirty needle. Sorry, that was I got a talk. Um, and get uh, and contract HIV. You can contract HIV. Clearly, there was um, people who contracted HIV through blood transfusions. Um, there, I think that it, there's a very slim. I know people like in the drug world, or I know of discussion that it was round upon like not to share paraphernalia other than needles as well. So like people that were snorting things. So say you put something in your nose to snort a line of some illicit 
euphoric <laughs> drug, um, and that you share that straw. You can also have blood on there, but I think that's much harder to do. Um, there's no uh, recorded case of it being passed in saliva, to my understanding or to my knowledge. Um, so if someone becomes infected with HIV, what sort of treatment options do they have? Well, gratefully, uh, now, um, there are a lot of treatment options. So obviously there's medications, and medications now are uh, incredibly effective. Um, I, for instance, for instance uh, take a, one pill every night. Um, I would love to reference for you all the different isinophirs and visophirs, but it's a mixture of different um, medications that work together to um, stop the, the growth of the virus within the cell and then also to stop the virus from uh, infecting other cells in your body, blood cells. Uh, and so uh, there's incredible amounts of, uh, of drugs. Um, I will explain it to you like this. Like um, when I first contracted HIV, um, I was in a support group and they talked about like, they talked about um, HIV medication as though it was like um, bookshelves. So say you start on the bottom shelf and there's two or three medications on the bottom shelf and you take them and they don't work or you grow or you at some point become resistant to that drug and you go to the next shelf above it and then you go to the next shelf and now there's shelf on top of shelf on top of shelf on top of shelf and those drugs are also um, have much, much fewer side effects than they used to as well, gratefully now, too. So um, when I was... Researching a little bit about this before our conversation, I talked with a friend of mine that had been diagnosed uh, in the last year or two, and they said that the health department the person that explained it to them basically said that the medicine goes and it finds the cells that have HIV and it wraps them up like a Christmas present so that it can't get out. <laughs> um, exactly. And so that way that cell can't reproduce, it can't um, replicate itself. Right. And so, therefore, yeah, the, your, your viral count. Yeah, so that brings the viral count down to um, to something much smaller. And so, the vi the viral count. Since we're talking about that, um, medication now can get you to the point that they can that you can be considered undetectable. Uh, what does undetectable mean, and how does that connect with the viral count? So in layman's terms, uh, which is what I live in, so the, your viral count is a count of the um, amount of the virus in your body, and so you can become virally undetectable, meaning, which I am, uh, um, which means that, uh, it means that, uh, it means a few things. First of all, it means um, it's um, both the scientific community and the medical community um, now are now in agreement and have an understanding and have it, you know, it's been announced in the last few years that there's no way for a person who has, is um, undetectable to be able to pass the virus to anybody through an unprotected effect, through needles, or whatever. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a medical, scientific, doctor kind of a thing. Um, that there's no chance of somebody's undetectable of them being able to pass the virus to somebody who isn't um, infected, which is why it's super important to get an HIV test and get diagnosed and get on medication. Know your stuff. Um, so, yeah, your original question was about viral count. So um, when you first get diagnosed with HIV, often, I mean, it depends. Some people are responsible and they go and get, you know, if they're sexually active, 
Um, I can speak for the people in the queer community and some people in, you know, het, the heterosexual community or however you want to put that, that, you know, people who are sexually active um, are and not in committed relationships, quack, 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 whatever, that they're going out and taking care of their health uh, regularly. But there are people who don't still. I know of a few people in the last few years who had not had HIV tests and had probably been living with HIV for 10 years and they suffered great uh, physical hardship and damage to their bodies um, and their brains from not having the a detect from not detecting the virus and treating it. So, uh, so when you get detect when you get um, diagnosed and they do a viral load check, um, it's in the thousands usually, depending on if it's you know fifteen thousand or one hundred and fifty thousand. But however much virus is in your system is another um, uh, denominator. It's another thing that talks about whether or not you have AIDS, but it also clearly, you know, if you have an incredibly high viral load in your system, then your chances of passing HIV to somebody else are higher. A HIV, AIDS, it's, is it, would you say it's still considered a terminal diagnosis or is the medication such no. that it's pretty easy to... Not, not terminal at all. Uh, you know, when I first was diagnosed, uh, People talked to me, um, people in the health field and doctors said, you know, that most likely at that time, which would be, well, who knows, in the early 2000s, 2001, uh, that the, uh, they talked about being able to live for 25 or 30 more years with medications. Um, but now that the medications make you make the virus undetectable, Okay, so I'm going to explain more. So when I was first diagnosed, I wasn't put on medication for many years because my body and however, whatever the strain of virus or whatever, however the virus interacted with my body, um, it man, my body managed um, better than a lot of other people's did. So my viral load never got super high and my T cells held pretty steady for a long time. The thought process then in 2001 prior to that and for some years after that was that you don't want to go on medication until you have to because you don't want to take a medication and then develop a resistance to that medication, you don't want to run out of medication options. Um, and so, uh, wow, what was the question? Um, and so, um, so then they were saying, you know, with medication you could live 25 or 30 years, but no one says anything about that now. It's, it's, I mean, I assume that I will live to see Ben Bear with a cane and gray hair hobbling about. I don't have hair, so good luck with that. You have beard. Oh, I can't wow. see that. That's uh -huh. That's going to be white soon. <laughs> if someone's trying, so let's say someone is in a relationship with someone who is positive, even if they're undetectable, it still would be prudent for them to want to safeguard. Um, Go on PrEP. So we, what is PrEP? PrEP is Travada. Travada was, um, is an HIV medication, actually. It's been around a long time um, in HIV years, whatever. Um, and, and doctors realized that by going on a regimen of PrEP, it actually, I don't want to say acts as a vaccine. It, it can um, keep someone who is, who is negative. Um, it allows them to not, in most cases, be able to be infected with HIV. It acts as a, I wish I had a really good word right now. It acts as a... Barrier? A barrier of sorts, yeah. So basically it, it creates, um, it allows you to not get infected. So being on PrEP is really important. And to be honest, like 
anybody who's sexually active, gay, straight, queer, whatever, in my opinion, if they're engaging in unprotected sex ever, should be on prep if they're sexually active. Um, there's no reason not to. But we still have to get the government to um, agree. And because it's expensive. And prep stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis or something like that. Did I, did Very I that nice. Correctly? Okay. You got that just right. Um, and you touched on the next question: expensive. I have heard that HIV medication is quite expensive. There was um, a news uh, blip about it a few years ago when uh, that uh, young executive had gotten the the rights for a particular HIV medication and jacked it up like 5,000% in price because he knew that people had to pay it because it was how they were going to stay alive. And so, um, but just across the board in general, HIV medication is kind of notoriously expensive, correct? How do people afford that? Uh, well, there's a couple different ways. And that man, that medication was actually a medication that um, people who... Uh, when you have HIV and it goes undiagnosed, you can uh, develop what's called toxoplasmosis, um, meaning that the blood-brain barrier in your the blood-brain barrier is uh, broken or it gets through the wall, <laughs> um, and it can damage your brain. And then what happens to you after that is you get something called PML, where the virus or the toxoplasmosis will actually start to um, eat away at your brain matter. Oh. That medication that he's he put it, the medication that he got the rights to and increased by a 5,000% was a medication that would keep people from getting PML after they, yeah, so he's a total asshole. Um, and so, uh, and leave that one in. Um, so, um, the question was about, so it's super expensive. Um, there's a couple different ways. Obviously, um, if you have health insurance, then your health insurance, you just have a copay. When I've had um, good health benefits. I've had a copay of like $10 a month for medication that would probably range, if I paid out of pocket, somewhere between like two to $3,000 a month. Whoa. Um, at least, I would think at least $1,800 a month for the medication to keep you alive or to keep you from, you know, keep your HIV in, in check. Um, there's also lots of really good, um, I don't know if there's lots of, there's um, something called ADAP, AIDS Drug Assistance Program. Um, which uh, if you make um, below, if you have a certain income, if you live below a certain income, um, I'm sure depending on uh, lots of things, but as a single man, for me, living um, on a certain income, I think if you if you let, make less than, I think it's changed in the last few years, if you make less than like fifty or 55000 or $60,000 a year or something like that, I'm not sure what it used to be. Years and years ago, it was $45,000 a year, but I think it's gone up because obviously cost of living increases and wages don't um then adap you could apply for this thing called adap and it would um they would it would pay for your medication um i think some of those monies actually come from the drug companies as well many of the drug companies that make the drugs have programs that you can apply for if you have to with that will also subsidize or pay for your medication but if you had to pay for medication out of pocket, um, it would be incredibly expensive, which is, you know, sort of a harrowing thing about living with HIV. Um, I currently actually, um, I quit a job that I had that I had PPO medical benefits on um, in the fall and then had a temporary position 
with Modesto Junior College, with the junior college, um, but I don't have benefits. So I had to apply for what's called Cover California, which we're lucky to have in California. Um, and I was actually automatically had to apply for Medi-Cal, which is low income. It's, you know, for people making less money and because I didn't have a consistent income or at the time I was when I was applying I was unemployed and had no income it um gratefully even uh, gratefully ADAP pays ADAP is paying for my medication but if I didn't have that I didn't have income and I didn't have I mean there'd be no way but like if people didn't interact like if there wasn't organizations and there wasn't um ADAP AIDS drug assistance program people would just get sick and die one of the programs that I know we have in this region, in Virginia, there is one called the Ryan White Foundation that I, I think it's a national organization, but um, but I know that my friend that I talked to simply refers to it as the Ryan White Foundation, whether it belongs to something broader or not, but um, this, the story of Ryan White is he's a kid that needed blood transfusions when he, it was back in the mid-80s, I think. Um, and he got these blood transfusions when he was, I think, middle school, late elementary, something like that. And yeah, one of the like trans- 12-ish, I think. Okay. And, yeah, he had a bad transfusion. One of the transfusions ha- was HIV-infected, and they didn't know to test for it, or they didn't have the proper equipment to test for it at the time. And so he got infected. And he was responsible for instigating some legislation toward safeguarding biases and prejudice against people who have HIV because his school tried to kick him out, wouldn't let him come to school because he had HIV. And because of the ignorance of people that were scared of it, they they didn't want him to be at school with their children, even though it had been proven that you couldn't contact, you couldn't, it wasn't a contact (laughs) virus. So, um... So that's just a little history lesson, I guess. And I felt proud of myself that I remember. Well, in well, ADAP, what I was talking about, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, is was is actually through the Ryan White and Global HIV AIDS programs. Oh. So. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Ryan White program. Ryan White's still doing good for us. Which leads to the next question: Do you feel that there is still a social stigma towards individuals who are infected with HIV? Yes. Um, I think it depends on the community you're in and on the education level of people that you interact with. But I can certainly say, um, yes, there is. Uh, I said I'm from California, but I live in the Central Valley of California for all of those listening out there, which is not like the coast or San Francisco or Los Angeles. It's not completely backwards, but um, it's a little bit different. So there's still, I can say, for instance, um, there are still people within the queer community that refer to people with AIDS and HIV as dirty versus clean. So if you have HIV, there are people within the queer community that are ignorant, um, call people with HIV. Or, for instance, on like apps, like dating apps or stuff like that, dating apps, dating is in quotations, uh, they would refer to people as clean and dirty. Um, there's an organization called um, the Stigma Project that's based out of San Francisco that works um, against things like that. But, I mean, there's certainly, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you don't ever know um, about when you interact with new, um, you would think that when you interact with new medical people, people like doctor or your dentist or stuff like that, um, you wouldn't run into stuff like that. I have experienced um, in now a situation with a 
dentist who didn't want to provide care to me uh, because I have HIV. Uh, certainly, there's still people that are, um, you know, I mean, it's just like anything. We live in America. I mean, come on. There's a bunch of stupid people here. Um, and also, but they're lovely, lovely and stupid. Um, ignorant people. And so, um, you know, people are scared of things that are different. Uh, people are scared. Um, people don't evolve and they don't learn things. And so uh, you have to make an effort, I think. You know, once you know somebody that has AIDS or HIV or maybe once you know somebody that's queer, you and not necessarily queer. Lots of straight people have HIV. Um, yeah, of course there is. Definitely still stigma. Within the queer community, I can speak to that. And outside of that as well. And I'm sure there are parts of the country, you know, I live in California, but I'm sure there are other parts of the country I can only imagine um, the stigma that's still involved with just being queer or being nonconformist or different in some way than other people, just that in itself. And then to label, to layer AIDS and HIV on top of it would probably be um, near to a death sentence in some communities. And I don't mean death by AIDS and HIV, I mean hatred. Have you ever felt like you've been ostracized within your particular faith community or it just in general within faith communities? Around AIDS and HIV or around? Around, yeah, thing? HIV and AIDS. Your picture. So um, um, I don't feel that way in the Bethesda Church of the Brethren at all. Um, I mean, I uh, most people there know that I have AIDS and HIV because I've spoken about it and um, – I think I first talked about it when the Modesto Church of the Brethren where we're, we were working towards becoming um, an opening of open and affirming congregation and working towards becoming part of um, the Supportive Churches Network. Um, and one of the one of the things I said in a, you know, there's 40 or 50 people there probably at one of the meetings where it's nothing it with it. Um, you know, I just talked about my experience of growing up gay in the church, well, and actually leaving the church at some point because of that. But and talked about being HIV positive and certainly didn't label, put it on the back of the church that it had anything to do with my HIV status because certainly we make our own choices and what happens does happen to us by our own choice. But what I talked about specifically was if we have people in, in the church community that are queer and are out, just like in the greater world, that those people that are young or struggling, whether they're young or old with their identity, might make different choices around healthy choices, which may keep them from getting AIDS and HIV. Um, so certainly not at the Church of the Brethren in Modesto um, have I experienced that. Um, I can't imagine in the greater church I wouldn't because, you know, just being gay in, the, in parts of the church is not okay um, and looked down upon. Um, and I think if people, obviously, if people feel that there's something wrong with gay people, I can't imagine what they would think about a gay person with AIDS um, or HIV. I'm speaking a very queer-centric. Sorry, I wish I could speak more to a broader thing, but whatever. Well, speak to what you know, I suppose. Uh, okay. Do you have any particular examples of ways that your congregation has been supportive of you? I mean, in regards to my status, everybody knows. And I think my experience of the church that I live in and that I, um, you know, I'm part of the cloth in is that they're supportive of me in every way. And so to be, um, to know that you're cared for and loved for, um, cared for and loved with, cared for and loved, um, is, uh, pretty paramount, I think. 
Um, when I've talked about having AIDS and HIV, people have asked me about it because they didn't know that until they found out. Um, and everyone's been supportive and loving. I've never experienced stigma or anything like that from anybody, which is a big deal. I mean, that goes a lot towards uh, emotional health, goes a lot towards physical health, especially with AIDS and HIV, um, as well as other diseases, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, people check in. People want to know that I'm healthy. So I guess that's a big support. Good. Have you ever found on a denominational level that there are any resources or support networks for individuals who have HIV? I don't know that. I wish that I did. Um, I imagine if I really spent some time uh, on the Brother Mennonite Council website and also on the Supportive Churches ne Network website that I might find some information. I should maybe just look at the national thing for the Brethren Church as well. Um, but I haven't. I guess, you know, I mean, hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I to be fair, I I, out of all the brethren people that I know, and I probably know maybe more than the average brethren person, um, uh, you, I think, are the only the only person that comes to mind as being HIV positive. So it's certainly not a prevalent, right. it's not a prevalent population. It's not a, a large population to address. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I don't think so. And I, um, and I think that other thing just comes back into my mind where I wouldn't even search it out because I know of the the differences within the church, you know. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, it might not be a priority or something that we talk about that much since we have such a hard time talking about other things. So if you could imagine some sort of support from a denominational level, whether it's from Brother Mennonite Council or if it's from Supportive Congregations Network or if it's from the Church of the Brethren National Offices, what sort of support or resources would you hope would be available? Um, okay, so um, certainly it would be lovely, I think, um, for someone who is recently diagnosed or becomes diagnosed with HIV to be able to go onto the... Church of the Brethren National website or um, SEN or BMC, and for there to be a resource for them, um, uh, somebody like me that they could get on the phone with and talk to their diagnosis and talk to them about how it doesn't have to, um, that it doesn't mean a death sentence, but also just to be emotionally supportive, because regardless of whether or not you're going to be healthy or whether or not there's great medication, it's still devastating, I'm sure. It was incredibly devastating to me. Um, to be, to know that there is community within your community, you know what I mean? I mean, the Church of the Brethren is my people, it's my community, and to know that there's people, you know, out, out there that uh, are supporting and loving of you regardless of your status, regardless of your sexuality, regardless of who you are, um, that, uh, that they, you know, you're still loved and you're still cared for. Um, it would be nice, you know, if people in the denomination knew AIDS and HIV even meant. Um, I'm sure there's still stigma in lots of places that I don't experience at the Vanessa Church of the Brethren, and I'm sure there's stigma. And, you know, that's just because people don't know. I mean, that's like anything. People don't know. So the more we know, the better off we are. Um, people need to feel loved no matter what. That sounds like a good bit of advice there. Well, David, thank you for taking the time to chat a bit. Uh, I've really enjoyed the insight that you've offered, and I appreciate the openness in which you've shared. You're welcome, Ben Bear. So until next time, uh, thank you so much, David. And Dunker Punks, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll be in touch somewhere down the road.
so much to David for being so open and insightful in his sharing. It's true, we as brethren don't talk much about HIV. It's something that's different, and that makes it scary and at times contentious. But not talking about it is obviously not helpful and creates lasting problems for people for whom HIV is very real. Like David said, emotional health goes a long way towards physical health. Brethren seem to focus on being a tight-knit community, and I think Modesto would be a prime example for showing how to make the sermon come to life, how to be supportive, how to practice a way of loving people. Dunker Punks, my challenge for you today is to address any stigma you might have about HIV and AIDS and to do some research. Start the conversation in your communities and continue the conversation in this community. podcast is produced by a group of folks from around the country who are seeking awareness. This episode is produced by Ben Baer, executive producer Suzanne Lay, and I'm your host, Jacob Krauss. Thanks to Ben's guest, David Messimer, for being on the podcast today. If you would like to become involved with the podcast, what better way than through a survey seen directly by our production team? We're looking to try some new formatting and want to get to know our listeners better. Your opinion on the show, why you listen, what you'd like to hear, you hear a lot from us every other week, and we'd love to hear from you, too. I'll post a link to the survey on our social media along with this podcast. You can find us at Dunker Punks Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org with any questions, comments, joys, grievances, suggestions, recipes, etc., etc. Have an awesome week, y'all. Until next time. Until next time.